Welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous, the weekly podcast where me, Michael Gridley, and my two co-hosts, Bill D'Alessandro and Mill Snell, uh, the newly business bought Mill Snell, by the way. Congratulations on reaching the big time, Mills. Thanks, man. I'm just glad that I think on our second episode, you didn't remember my last name. So I'm glad that now after 20, you got it. Thanks. Uh, it's because you bought a business. So now you're legit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm actually, now I'm actually friend worthy. You were dead to me before. Now you're something. Yeah. Just so, just so you know. <laughs> no, that's the whole reason I did it. I, it. The cash flow, the, you know, wealth building, none of that matters. Anywho, I, you, you're always special to be Mills Jackson. I mean, Snell. <laughs> um, no, um, it, anyway, the, the theme of this podcast is a, is a great one. The three of us get together. We have varied backgrounds and each week uh, talk about uh, two small businesses that are for sale, typically that are going to be priced 20 million or below, uh, that we're breaking our own rule this week and have one that's bigger than 20 million, though, just by a little bit. So cool thing. We have both of our uh, deals this week are submitted by listeners. Again, if you're a listener and you would like uh, to have us analyze a deal on the podcast, you just send us a teaser or a summary or whatever you feel comfortable with. Uh, and then we will keep the deal as anonymous as you want it. Uh, and then we'll talk about it. So um, you get free consulting and we get a podcast out of it. It's great. Cool. So here's the first one. Uh, and it is from a brokerage. Uh, the title is SBA pre-qualified, so Small Business Association Loan pre-qualified, 11-year-old Amazon private label business, FBM3PL. What does FBM stand for, Bill? Fulfilled by merchants. So what this means is rather this is the opposite of FBA. So FBA be fulfilled by Amazon. You send it to Amazon's fulfillment centers and they ship it. FBM is you ship it from your own fulfillment centers. All this, although this one says FBM. 3PL, which implies right. to me that they have a 3PL that does fulfill by merchant on their behalf. Got it. Okay. And so FBM fulfilled by merchant. So they, they fulfill the orders themselves. So they run their own warehouse, but then they also do third-party logistics. No, I think they don't run their own warehouse. I think they have a third-party logistics firm who runs their warehouse for them. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds even better. And then they are in the high margin automotive tools business. Business size, revenue listed as 1.7 million. Um, they list income as 416000 and they want a multiple of three times revenue for the business or three times income for the business. So that means uh, for $1.7 million of revenue, they have 416000 in income, multiple of three times, and they're asking $1.25 million plus the value of their inventory for the purchase price. So... They, they always sneak that inventory stuff in there. Uh, I'll go on my soapbox in a minute about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you want to go find this one, um, we're only talking about public information on this one. It's on Quiet Light, the Quiet Light Brokerage's site. So um, we will also poop on the um, level of detail in this teaser. So, But anyway, um, started in 2009, this 11-year-old Amazon FBM and FBA business, private label business, has enjoyed sustained success over the years with 630 active SKUs. That's a lot. This business sells high margin branded tools for automotive mechanics for engine and chassis repairs. They are also a distributor for flexible cylinder hones. Hones? Hoses? Hoses? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, the meta comment about this is going to be how bad this teaser is. So somebody should have put on their try hard and they got the try not hard here. Flexible cylinder hoses for a domestic supplier and a drop shipper of vinyl tire covers. This business has a long-standing relationship with an overseas buyer representative, which gives them the ability to source any tool on the market. Because of this, they also offer tools outside of the automotive segment and have unlimited potential to add new SKUs to the brand. 
the business enjoys multiple revenue channels with Amazon accounting for 60%, with 90% fulfilled by the merchant and 10% fulfilled by Amazon. eBay is 30% of their business, wholesale is 5%, and direct to consumer via their website is 5%. So mostly Amazon with some eBay. Um, with more than 11 years since launching their first SKU, the brand has established itself deeply within the Amazon marketplace, boasting over 500 reviews for the main product maintaining the Amazon Choice badge on several products and earning an average star rating of 4.2. All products are sourced in China with reliable and proven vendors, and all FBM is handled via their third-party logistics provider in the United States. And the owner believes there are several obvious areas for growth, including increasing SKUs to send to Amazon, getting on Walmart, and upgrading to Shopify from the guy's current Yahoo stores. The owner is selling because he would like to retire and is now fully prepared to transition a new owner into the business. So please, I will pull out the soapbox and uh, let Bill stretching for those of you that can't see the video and about to rip this one, a new one. So Bill, over to you, sir. Uh, this is me. This is me cracking my knuckles. Uh, so this business is, uh, here's a couple things that jump out at me. 630 SKUs is a ton. And they say they've got this rep, this longstanding relationship with an overseas buyer representative that gives them the ability to source any tool on the market. So what this tells me is this is China arbitrage, is what this business is doing essentially, right? They're they're buying tools in China. They're probably screen printing their name on them and they're selling them on Amazon and on eBay. Not that that's bad, but that's definitely what's going on here. What I think is interesting is that they're doing ninety percent FBM and only ten percent FBA. That would make me guess that these tools are either are one of two things, either very heavy, uh, which means the FBA fees would be very expensive, or very large, uh, kind of oversized, which FBA hates and charges through the nose for, or lower probability, very cheap, uh, small and light, which it's hard to make money on in FBA. So I would bet these tools kind of fit one of those buckets, uh, either very heavy, very large, or very cheap. Um, and that's probably why they're doing FBM rather than FBA. They're also doing 30% of their business on eBay, which means they're they're probably just spraying and praying these SKUs. The other thing that jumped out at me is 11 years in business and their main product has only 500 reviews. Uh, that is not a very big number to me for 11 years in business as the primary product. So what this makes me think is this might be their number one product, but I bet it's 10% of sales. Or something like that. So it's either this is either a very long tail business, or they're horribly under optimized on Amazon. So this might be a really good thing because maybe they're terribly under optimized. But I would bet this is probably a really long tail business. I'm also not in love with an average star rating of four point two. Like that's a great thing. Uh, that's like just kind of hanging on by a thread. Eleven years old. Like this is interesting. This is a guy with a supplier relationship in China. You know, China arbitraging to Amazon and eBay is kind of my take on this. Uh, it's just really hard to know how attractive this is without seeing the products. But I would guess, being kind of the way they're sourcing the number of SKUs they have, the products are probably not differentiated. It's just China arbitrage. Yeah. Well, and so just coming from a top-down, like, novice in the space, I have to wonder why Thrasio or any of the 85,000 other, like, people rolling up FBA businesses hasn't picked this up. And it's, you think it's because it's not very good? It's because it's a couple of reasons. One is 90% FBM, which the aggregators don't like. They want it to be FBA. So Amazon handles kind of all that. You don't have to think about it. 
Uh, also, when it's FBM, you have to handle more customer service. But when it's FBA, Amazon is the front line for customer service. So if you're an aggregator, you that you hate that about this business. Um, now, that might mean it's a moat for this business. Like maybe they're selling these big heavy things that are hard to do via FBA. So the fact that they've got FBM set up is potentially a moat. Uh, and that's probably why they've also expanded to eBay because they've already got the fulfillment capability. Uh, I would say the other reason an aggregator hasn't scooped this up is because it's so many SKUs, yeah. uh, six, 630 SKUs. Uh, it's just, that's a lot of business complexity. And, and this business is not that big. It's making 400 grand a year on 600 SKUs, which means you're making less than a hundred or less than a thousand dollars a year profit on every SKU. Right. I mean, on, a, on average, right. If you just do the math, I'm sure there's a bit of a bell curve, but as we said earlier, I think this is actually a long tail business given the paucity of reviews on what is called their main product. Um, so I think this is, that's another thing. It's just a lot of business complexity, probably uh, for the size. I just have a few questions for you, Bill. My head kind of spun a little bit on a Yahoo store, the transition from Yahoo to Shopify. I, I don't look at that many of these businesses, but I don't ever see people hosting their e-commerce on Yahoo. What's, what's that about? You would have in the 90s. but yeah i mean this tells me like it is ancient it's uh yahoo used to have a product called yahoo stores which was like hosted e-commerce like way before anybody was even doing that it's like three generations old like i can't even i i thought they sunset it to be honest i didn't even know (laughs) that you could still be on yahoo stores but that's so it's about time to move shopify that being said website sales five percent of revenue here yeah. All right. This this comment they have about uh, you know expanding into Walmart.com, that that I feel like they're maybe making it sound easy. What how involved is it to expand to Walmart.com? So it entirely depends on what kind of software tools they're using. If and it's possible that they already have kind of a multi-channel lister software set up that's listing their stuff on Amazon and eBay, because they're doing 30% on eBay. So it's possible that adding Walmart might not be that operationally complex. That being said, it would I wouldn't expect like a huge revenue pop from doing it. You know, you might get 10 a 10% revenue growth or something. That the mm-hmm. Walmart marketplace is just not that big. Gotcha. Then there's this comment Okay, so it looks like the vast majority of their business is this kind of China arbitrage, but then these random two other things that maybe they're wholesale, you know, 5% of revenue, the distributor of the flexible cylinder hones or hoses, whatever it is, and then they drop ship vinyl tire covers. So I'm just trying to think through if you're a drop shipper for a manufacturer, that means that folks are going to the manufacturer's website to buy vinyl tire covers and you're just holding inventory for them and drop shipping it for them? Is that most likely what's happening? Or are they coming to your website and buying it? Thank you for calling out the sentence because this is definitely worth unpacking. So the sentence is they are also a distributor for flexible cylinder hones, whatever those are, for a domestic supplier and a drop shipper of vinyl tire covers. So this probably means that the first part of the sentence, a distributor for flexible cylinder hones, what this probably means is the cylinder hone manufacturer has no idea what the hell Amazon is. And so they went to them and go, hey, we would like to basically be a distributor for you. And they negotiated distributor pricing. And the distributor hones guy goes, sure, whatever, as long as your money's green. Uh, and then they're list- listing it on Amazon and probably arbitraging gotcha. that. So that's probably what's going on there, at which it, there's a lot of Amazon businesses like that. Uh, and then the other thing that's going on, a drop shipper of vinyl tire covers with this probably means is 
someone is drop shipping the vinyl tire covers on their behalf. So they'll sell a vinyl tire cover and the vinyl tire cover manufacturer will send it for them. Typically in gotcha. e-commerce world, if you say I'm a drop shipper or I'm in drop shipping, that's typically what people mean is that they're inventory light uh, and they just do the e-com side of it and someone drop ships on yeah. their behalf. Okay. All right. So it's not that we provide warehouse space you know, for somebody else's goods. It's the opposite of that. I agree. It's written the way you described, but just kind of knowing what I know about this industry and the lazy lexicon of this industry, this probably means that they're inventory light on the vinyl tire covers. Mm-hmm. How is the category of, you know, kind of automotive? I feel like we, we've seen a handful of these, like, automotive, motorcycle accessories, but like automotive tools seems like it, you know, you, you raised some issues about it. They may be big, they may be heavy, but what's the relative kind of value, competitiveness, you know, attractiveness of automotive tools? So automotive is a fascinating industry. I didn't know much about it until I made a really good friend when I lived in Colorado and he owned a brand of automotive chassis parts. Uh, that he cast overseas in Taiwan and Hong Kong. And he taught me, I went to their biggest trade show with him, uh, SEMA, which is in Las Vegas, is the automotive aftermarket trade show, which is the largest trade show in America. And the automotive aftermarket industry is absolutely effing massive. And it's a really a long tail industry also when you're talking about aftermarket car parts anyway, because there's all these different makes and models you know, still on the road and they stay on the road for 30 years, right? And so the aftermarket parts, you know, kind of this very long tail. Now, I don't know if that applies to the automotive tools segment, um, but I would think kind of in the short to medium term, this is probably a bigger market than you would expect it to be. You know, if, and if you want to kind of underscore that, drive around town and notice how many used car lots and mechanics there are. When you drive around, your eyes kind of roll over them but they're freaking everywhere. And there's just huge demand for this, a huge market. In the long term, I might be a little bit worried because the tools to fix a Tesla are probably very different than the tools to fix you know, a GM. Um, but I don't think that would be a near-term concern for this business, again, because of the really long tail. Uh, and light. I mean, in, in 50 years, there's still gonna be gas cars on the road. We can be sure of that. They might not be making new ones, but there will be gas cars on the road. Um, so this... I like the automotive aftermarket industry. That being said, I don't know if this is automotive aftermarket. This is more kind of tools to people who work in the automotive aftermarket. It's interesting to me the differences in the e-commerce world with these categories and the lower middle market private equity world because there are certain segments in lower middle market private equity where you just know you're going to get tons of customer concentration. So if you if you work with or you look at a deal that is automotive related in private equity, you just know you're going to have massive customer concentration, probably 20 to 30 to 35% customer concentration at best, because there's just so few manufacturers. And even if you trace it back, right, you may have a couple middle tier, but at the end of the day, you're basically selling into one of just a few. So it's interesting to think about down the food chain with something that's not you know, an OEM or something that's not, you know, directly in the supply chain, these ancillary things, just the different characteristics of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you're saying, there's like, there's Napa, there's O'Reilly and like, that's nearly it. Right. So well, the- I'm, I'm even more thinking like, if you it, like 
I've looked at a handful of deals in the past of like, Hey, we make this wire harness, you know, it's basically a bunch of wires that are all bundled together and they go into GM vehicles or they go into Ford, you know, vehicles. And so at the end of the day, if you're making these wire harnesses, your margins can, you know, look okay. You can have a fairly differentiated product, probably with a medium term contract, but, but you may have 60 or 70% customer concentration, but you, you also then get into Napa and advanced auto parts and stuff like that. Um, because, that you you know you're providing this thing that's in thousands and thousands of cars, hundreds of thousands of cars, and then they also have to be replaced and repaired. But you end up just you end up marrying yourself to customer concentration. It's the same in aerospace. If you make something that goes into an airplane, there's only a few air, you know airplane manufacturers. So at the end of the day, if you're making something that goes into an airplane and Boeing doesn't do well or Airbus doesn't do well, then you're kind of you're in bed with them. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about OEM automotive, if it's going to go in a new car. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or replacement parts, but it just accessories, right. Or kind of things that go along with your vehicle, like seat covers or vinyl floor mats or whatever. Those are in a totally different category in my mind. And that ends up usually being in this e-commerce channel. Yes. That is what I would call automotive aftermarket, like automotive accessories yeah. or upgrades or, you know, kind of hobbyist stuff is a really big and good market that you probably have less customer concentration and e-commerce loves it because of the long tail, no shelf space constraints. It's perfect for the internet. All right. Well, it sounds like we love the space kind of worried about this one. <laughs> yep. Question marks, question marks, question marks. Well, in the sake of time and I think closure, let's move on to our second deal, which I also have. And I will pull it up here. It is right around the corner from me in South Texas in the, Mostly lovely city of Corpus Christi. Funny story about Corpus Christi before we go there. I went down to pitch some investors there one time. And I was like, ah, you know, why are you interested in investing in, in people in San Antonio and the rest of Texas? And the, this old guy, this old crusty rich guy, he goes, son, Corpus Christi is where good ideas go to die. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that is not what the Chamber of Commerce wants you to say. Anyway, uh, on to this. Uh, maybe these guys have a good idea that's not dying. So... Um, this is a teaser that we got from a listener, uh, and it comes from an advisory firm, business broker called Trusted Advisors. So it is a, um, a the title is a diverse, heavy civil construction services business with 97 employees, 20 plus active jobs at one time, and 11 million in backlog. Then uh, the subheader is cash flow is 4.3 million a year. The seller is asking 22 million for the business. Revenue is 23 million and cash flow is 4.3 million. And they appear to be asking about five times cash flow. Is that, am I reading that right? 4.3 million cash flow times, times five is about 22 million. It is in Corpus Christi and they serve a hundred mile radius around Port Lavaca. Port Lavaca is like a town 35 miles away or so from Corpus. Uh, they have 97 full-time w, W2 employees plus a bunch of subcontractors hires as needed. The owner wants out because he's retiring or she is retiring. Uh, profit margin is 18%. It's really high for, for this type of contracting. Uh, intangible assets include diversified services and client base, solid reputation in the area, longstanding relationships with general contractors, and word-of-mouth referrals. Details on it. This heavy civil construction business has 11 million in backlog. So that means book bookings that they've already made, but they haven't delivered on. 
uh, and they have over 20 active projects going on at one time. Their sales size ranges from 200K projects to over 2 million. Um, with a team of 97 full-time employees in place, their sales size ranges from 200K to 2 million. Didn't they just say that? <laughs> Is that me? <laughs> the, sim, the sim says the same thing twice. Uh, they have averaged over 225 jobs per year for the last three years, and they're already on their 70th job of 2021, and they have plentiful work uh, there in Corpus Christi. They offer a vast array of heavy civil construction services, included building streets, subdivisions, commercial buildings, and industrial work at petrochemical plants, as well as utility system construction, earthwork, site prep, coastal erosion control, shoreline protection, and general maintenance. Yeah, so Corpus Christi has a bunch of oil refineries there, and it's on the water, uh, in case you didn't know. Most people don't know because it's Corpus Christi. By the way, I'm going to lose all both of our Corpus Christi listeners based on based on this. Uh, clients are comprised of pr uh, professional or private developers, industrial, counties, cities, states, and government. So they do B2C or B2B and B2G. This versatile offering of services and diverse client base works in this company's favor as they don't rely heavily on one client or sector. Approximately 65% of their work is as the general contractor, primarily for the county, city, or state. So they must be bidding a lot of stuff there. And the other 35% involves working for the GC on the project as a subcontractor. So they work for the general contractor who has the client relationship. While they do have a go-to list of subcontractors when needed, the majority of the time, it's their own team doing the work. Put an asterisk next to that. That's important. The team works out of a 6,000 square foot office building located on five acres of land. The facilities include one heavy equipment shop, one truck shop, one fuel and oil shed, and the owner of the business owns the facility under a separate entity and leases it back to the business for $9,000 a month. With a solid reputation in the area, the business has a longstanding relationship with customers and GCs alike. They're able to keep their service area within 100 miles radius of the office. So that's a good thing for them. Uh, they have a bunch of software that they use and it appears to be more modern. And they receive invites to bid from other GCs with they've worked with over the years. And they also subscribe to websites that send notices of upcoming projects that are up for public bidding with a 20 to 25% success rate. Priced at $22 million, there's ample opportunity for growth, including expanding the service area, actively pursuing more bids, opening a satellite in an office area nearby where the population is booming, would certainly lead to an increase in revenue. More facts, company's been around since 1959. Uh, incorporated in 1971. Current owner bought it in 1996. They're in Corpus Christi. Any other stuff going on here that's interesting? Sellers willing to stay for six to 12 months. Uh, and the current owner says they do general oversight. So I don't know. It seems like a hands-on owner because they have the CEO title. Uh, but there is also a general manager working for the CEO and owner, which um, maybe is a good sign that there's some established transferability of manager there. And then they list the current people that are on the company and that the company's been growing uh, over the past couple of years. 2017, they did 18 million in revenue. 2018, they did 23 million in revenue. 2019, they did 31 million in revenue. And then it looks like in 2020, they dipped way down uh, back to 23 million in revenue, if I'm reading this correctly. That is interesting. So if you look at this bar chart, <laughs> they're showing 2017 through 2019 revenue. They just don't show 2020 and 2020 revenue would have been down like 35%. Yeah. It looks like 30%. they, they just left it off the bar chart, but it's in the table. <laughs> That's the biggest chart yeah. crime of all. They, they needed to put in their COVID adjusted revenue, right? This is crazy because every, every graph, right. That you see in a SIM is just up and to the right. 
and this one is up and to the right because they left the last year off. <laughs> yeah. So Mill, Mills, this is your this is your space. What do you think? Well, I mean, there's there's a bunch of things. The total addbacks in each year is between 1.6 and 3.3 million dollars. So it's it's very very significant. It looks like compensation to owner that's probably material depreciation is massive which is no surprise in this business we can talk about that i will i will add something that is not not put in there if you look under the compensation to owner to the right under the note it says three officers so i think that means there's mm-hmm. owner and a couple kids working in this business if not a spouse so this is a this is a legit family business run like a family i mean they want to add back marketing expense. There's a lot you can say about this. So, I mean, at at the highest level, it's actually really difficult to understand from this deck what the company does. It says that they do heavy, you know, civil, diverse, heavy civil construction services. That could be paving. It could be grading. It could be earthwork or site work. They could be building retainage ponds. They could be prepping parking lots. Like, you just have no idea. And that to me is a pretty big deal because you, some of these categories are much better than others, right? If you're, if all you're doing is going right in front of a, you know, a home developer for a big track home development and paving and curbing, right? Then that's a totally different business than, oh, well, uh, you know, the Corpus Christi, you know, city municipal government calls us in to do repair work, right? Or, or heavier repair work than what their in-house crews can do. Like you just don't know. And, and in this case, it's, I would say it's a bad thing that we're not getting clarity on this. Depending on what they do, the regulatory environment for site work and dirt moving is just ever increasing. So if you want to pave a parking lot, you know, you can't do that without creating a retainage pond. And it's very, very expensive. I mean, depending on the area and the municipality that you live in, site work can be a substantial percentage of your overall project and it's regulated. You have to do it. Um, so, so it could be beneficial, but they don't say anything at all that I've seen unless I've missed it guys about, so they tell us that, that they have $12 million of equipment, but nothing about how, you know, how depreciated it is in a business like this. It's probably almost fully depreciated there's just a whole rat's nest of issues that we probably don't have time to get into about where the value actually is in a business like this. I I just would be willing to bet that, you know, you're buying a bunch of really old equipment. The owner hasn't kept up with all the reinvestment. If they have, they've maybe, you know, bought a bunch of like toys. I I don't know if you guys have ever run across this, but, but some business owners like this, they really love to have like the newest, the best type type stuff, but it's not necessarily the stuff that's most pertinent to the business. It's just like, oh, I found this new cool piece of equipment and we, you know, we thought we were going to use it a lot, but it just sits in our yard and it looks really good. The the people that own these businesses always seem to be the ones that are like the first one to buy the new Corvette when it comes out. Like every time I, every time I go visit (laughs) these businesses, the owner's driving like a yellow Corvette. It's like, that's just great. That's just that. I hope you enjoy that, there, yeah. Mister Sixty-five-year-old construction general contractor. It's <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, well, and so you you know the space better than me, Mills. But like, even with the addbacks, like the multiple here seems insane. Like, and because most of the, most of the transactions that I yeah. see that happen in businesses like this, where you can have low net margins, right? Where these guys are 
doing pretty well compared to most, but a lot of them trade at five, you know, have five to 10% net margins if they're good. And then like they end up trading based on some sort of earnout with employees and stuff like that, rather than getting bought and sold so much, just because the cash flows are so tough to predict. Yeah. I mean, the CapEx requirements on this, it's safe to assume that the CapEx is probably between a million and 2 million in a year, a year to keep this equipment up. So EBITDA is not even, you know, an appropriate measure at this point. But yeah, I mean, it's, these businesses are very, very difficult to transfer because you also have a bunch of depreciation recapture that the owner's going to have to face on all this fully depreciated equipment. And the ratio here, I mean, on a business like this, it's so fundamentally different than a service-based business because it's so asset intensive. The ratio between the EBIT and the DA is so vitally important. I mean, they've got they've got way, way, way more depreciation than they have earnings. And so that just tells you, right? If you ever, if you could ever get out in front of replacing and maintaining and buying equipment, you'd be great. But you're never going to be able to do that because the bigger you grow, the more equipment you have to have to perform work. So walk me through this. How does this work? They're claiming 4.3 million in cash flow, right, for 2020, but they're they show 23 million in sales and 1.5 million in net income. Like they're trying to give themselves credit for depreciation and interest towards cash flow and their own compensation? Well, they're calling it cash flow. They're saying it's cash flow, but they're really coming up with an EBITDA number. Yeah, because depreciation is money you had to pay at some point. You pay it, you just get to deduct it over time as your <laughs> as your asset depreciate. Yeah, it's just a it's just a non-cash expense. The other really bizarre thing here is that their, you know, their revenue dropped by 30% and their earnings stayed perfectly flat. Well, it's because they were trying to sell the business, Mills. Obviously. <laughs> no, 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 no. That would never be the case. That never happens, Bill. That's perfectly normal. Uh, it, just, it just just seems like a non-starter with the, the multiple. Like I, I wouldn't even double click on the rest of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen plenty of businesses like this ask for this type of multiple. But at the end of the day, any buyer who's going to buy a business that has $4 million in EBITDA is going to be shrewd enough to know that EBITDA is not cash flow, and there's no way it's trading off of EBITDA. With this much depreciation, with this much recurring CapEx, there's just no way. You would get to a true free cash flow number that is probably somewhere in the $1.5 to $2 million range, and it, and it might trade at a 3.5 to 4 times multiple on that, but it would not be all cash at close. Not not in a business that looks like it's this family centric, you know, and relationally driven because it's construction related. You've got 97 employees. You know, I, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of these guys kind of have been in the business for a long time with the owner. There's not a lot of redundancy and you know, it's just it's just a mess. Well, I, you know, I have buddies that are in this kind of stuff in more appealing niches than than this where these guys are, which is just very commoditized stuff. And the level, the level of like experience you get from being that business for 10 years, the relationships you get with all the people, the, all the little weird things, like that's the difference between losing 5% EBITDA per year and making 5% for these guys. And like, it's one of those ones where I look at them like, oh, this is a dangerous business to be in if you don't know what you're doing. Well, and, and you make a good point, right? On any of these, even whether you act as the GC or the sub, doesn't really matter. I mean, what they're trying to say is, look, we have a lot more control because we get hired out as our own prime contractor and only 35% of the time are with someone else's sub. At the end of the day, that, that doesn't necessarily 
purport as much strength as they want it to. But the actual trade that you're performing is so important because this is commoditized. At the end of the day, a building owner or a developer or a municipality, this is something that they're probably going to beat you up on. It's just a more commoditized, it, it, it affects their schedule because the site work has to be done before they you know, are really able to start framing, right? Or, or, or bringing anything vertical up out of the ground. But it's not one of those trades that gets, that commands consistently higher margins because the it's not a critical failure sub. I mean, that's why I bought a roofing business, but some kind of, you know, talking my own book, but people don't beat up roofing contractors. They don't beat up glass and glazing as much because if it fails, then everybody is screwed and it, and it messes everything up. And if you're, if you're slow to perform, then the entire job schedule gets off and the building isn't dried in and nobody else can come behind you to do all the other stuff. Yeah. And this comes from a, a group called The Firm, I guess they're out of Omaha, right? Is that, is that where they're from? The, the brokerage? That's right. Yeah. They get listings all over the US. I've dealt with them. I mean, they had a listing in South Carolina. I think we might've looked at it. They usually, my impression of them is that they they get the listing and they keep the listing for a really long time. <laughs> so you can infer what happens. I've talked know? to a couple of the brokers there. You know, they've pitched pitch me deals or asked to get on their newsletter. And, you know, they showed me like a couple that were interesting. But in the end, I was like, same kind of thing with this. It was just like, oh, I know where these guys got the listing. They promised them a really good high price and we think you can get it. And, you know, I think that's that's one of the things I've learned doing this podcast with you guys. Like beware of the brokers that win your business by promising you really high stuff. So there's just like the discount, you know, it's like, oh, we'll, we'll get you a six times multiple. Okay, that means three. <laughs> like that's what I hear in my head. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, they, you know, the broker, they're trying to do their job. They don't have anything if they don't get the listing. So they might as well overpromise and underdeliver because then over time, you, you just by means of, you know, attrition, you're just going to get worn down as a seller and go, okay, fine. We haven't, you know, this is the best offer we've had in three years. We might as well take it. It. So what if it's half of what we initially told you? Yeah. Started out so good, finished so terrible. <laughs> the heavy equipment stuff is just so hard. It could have been a it could have been a contender. Could have been this is a great way to be broke but owning this business. <laughs> just be you know what I have seen people do successfully though is they own really high free cash flow businesses and then they buy something like this because the tax benefits of all the depreciation and you can operate at basically a book loss consistently. I've seen people do that and and it works, right? It's they're still generating a fair amount of economic benefit. It's just in the form of tax advantages. You know, it's not in the form of true, true free cash. So, so it's not necessarily, you don't grow, go broke by owning this business. You probably go broke by buying this business, right? Like if, like if this guy yes, is probably yes. doing great, but you're probably not going to do great if you buy this business at a big old multiple. Yeah. I mean, oh my goodness. Could you imagine? I mean, on $22 million, you know, purchase price, let's just say you've got, you know, $15 million of that is debt. The debt service on that, I mean, look, I mean, look at it. it. It actually wouldn't pencil out. The earnings, the actual true earnings of the business yeah. is is consistently, yeah. you know, a million to a million two or way less. That a few years ago it was a, a third of that. You don't have yeah, enough to true. actually meet your debt service obligations just based on the earnings of the business. There's no bank that's gonna underwrite this. Like this, this fantasy loan strategy that they have here. They have, and for the listeners, they have a 
70% loan to value. So they would give you 70% of the purchase price in a loan from a bank. The seller would finance another 3 million. You come up with 3 million and they have underwritten a 10-year amortizing loan at a 6% interest for $15 million to help you buy this business. But somebody's going to give you three and a half turns of EBITDA for this is basically what they're modeling. And that is a... that is. In today's loose credit environment, I will tell you that is a ticket to fantasy land. That is not happening. Look at it. Look at, so your monthly loan payment, they even tell you it's $170,000 a month in monthly loan payments. That's $2 million a year in debt service. Scroll back up, Michael, to where the actual financials were. $2 million a year in debt service. And the net income in 2020, their best year to date was $1.5 million. This is just asinine. It makes no sense whatsoever. It would never work. (laughs) But they're going to figure that out because no one's going to make this work, right? Like even if, even if they waste somebody's yeah. time, as soon as they get into diligence, they're going to go, we can't finance this deal. And then it's going to have to sell for the market multiple, which is half of what they think it's worth. So the market, the market always wins sellers, regardless of what a broker tells you. It's worth what it's worth. If a broker lies to you, that doesn't mean your business is suddenly worth double what the market says it's worth. And and nobody nobody with twenty million dollars in their pocket is dumb enough to just come and stroke you a check for this thing for twenty million dollars cash and close you know yeah wow it does bring up an interesting tactic so I've had several times in the past where I'm looking at a deal and the seller has unrealistic expectations and I really like the actual underlying asset and I just I just basically go to them and say hey look this is what a bank will loan on right regardless of your expectations this is what it, this is what can actually get done from a lending perspective so let's start the conversation there instead of this pie in the sky idea that you have no lender will provide more than x amount of dollars so that's our starting point you know and i've had that work really well in the past because i'm just saying look it's not it's not unique to me it's unique to anyone who will borrow money for this business which is everyone yeah but this guy thinks he deserves it <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, good job this week, guys. I thought we I thought we did great. Anything more on this one? No, this is a good episode. I I think we went really deep on a couple of these. The listeners will benefit. Super good. All right. And uh, for listeners, we'd love to hear and be sent your deals that you're looking at. That's how we make this interesting. Uh, also, invitation to help us go from losing money on producing this podcast, none of us get paid, to breaking even. So please consider joining and becoming a patron uh, on Anchor. 10 bucks a month, anything. We pay an editor to make us not sound nasally and annoying and take out the ums and coughs. And uh, that makes makes it good for you guys. So if you're interested in becoming a patron, please join the 16 other people who give us money each month uh, to help us defray the cost of putting this on. So uh, with that, great job, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah, we'll put it this way. If if you guys don't sponsor, you're going to have to hear us um and cough pretty soon here. So (laughs) So, it's not a threat, but it's kind of a threat. (laughs) Hey, or or look, I got to get something out of this. And if it means telling you guys more Corpus Christi jokes, I'm going to tell you more Corpus Christi jokes. So uh, if if we get three more sponsors, I promise no more Corpus Christi jokes. I'm I'm going to forward that memo to the uh, economic development office in Corpus Christi and see if they can drum something up. Oh, this guy worked for them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. You know, we're going to need the economic development office of Corpus Christi to sponsor us or there will be more Corpus Christi jokes. This is this is protection money there for Corpus go. Christi. <laughs> yeah. Well, at, at some point we can dig into it. But the, I mean, if you talk to people that live in Corpus Christi, they think that cronyism is the thing that has held back that city for 100 years. Everybody just making sure they get theirs. 
And uh, it's kind of sad thing. It should be great. It's, it should be it should be the preeminent port city in Texas, and it's a nowheresville compared to what it could have possibly been. Kind of sad. On that note. <laughs> On that note, see you guys next week. <laughs> Great job. See you later. <laughs> Thanks, Bye. guys.